where you and I can connect. It's a show that embraces a 360-degree look at womanhood. It's our voice, our perspective. It's what we care about, and it's how we feel. Empowerment through conversation is what it is. This is Full Circle. Welcome to another edition of Full Circle. I'm your host, Miss Wanda. Thank you so much for joining the program on this beautiful Saturday morning. I'm so happy that you're here now. Sisters, I have been getting a lot of emails, a lot of text messages. People have been dropping stuff on my social media about this show today. I'm so excited to finally be able to bring it to you. We are talking women's reproductive health. So that means that we might be having some delicate conversations. So if you got kitties in the room, I'm warning you now. We're going to be saying some words that you may not want your kids to hear, but not in a bad way. But we want to make sure that you are fully educated in what you need to know to make sure that you advocate for yourself. You know, I'm a big believer in us advocating for ourselves when it comes to our health. And so today we are bringing you the information that you need to know with my very special guest, Dr. Akiba Green. I am so happy to have her in the building today. She is an OBGYN. She is practicing and she is here to be able to give us the information that we need to know. I didn't even get a bio from you, uh, Akiba. So I'm going to have to have you just tell the people who you are. Oh, man. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for having me, Miss Wanda. Absolutely. So, yes, I am a practicing OBGYN generalist physician. I live here in Sacramento, but I am working in Chico at Inlow Medical Center. I've born and raised in California from Modesto, grew up in Modesto and left for school and came back and Mm -hmm. this is my area. Okay, this is home. Yes, this is home. And we got to give a shout out to your family, my extended family, uh, Angel, who yes. hooked us up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Risha, who was like another sister to me, and the whole Green family, which is very huge. Yes, there's a big clan here. I went to a, 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 one of Risha's holiday party, the Green holiday party. Yes, oh, it, it was, was bomb. packed. Yes. And you had nowhere to sit. <laughs> nowhere to sit. Nowhere to big sit. House. And it was so good. So she's from Sacramento. She is our people. And she's here to help us talk about women's health, reproductive health in particular. Um, I want to just jump right in, Akiba, because a lot of women I know um, and family members even have suffered with fibroids. I just want to jump right into it. Let's talk uterine fibroids and what they are and why are black and brown women so much more susceptible, if that's the right word, to getting those Okay, so with fibroids, they're extremely common. They're present across all populations. It doesn't matter background. Mm -hmm. But yes, it does seem to be more common in women of African descent. But of course, nobody really knows exactly why. Okay, And some of that is because not too many of us are keen on jumping into the research studies. Mm-hmm. All right. And then on top of that, you don't have too many people who actually want to do the research. So we don't have a lot of data as, as far as the why. Mm-hmm. Okay. But we know that it does occur. And the other issue is 
kind of what everybody has been talking about in regards to COVID, in regards to high blood pressure, in regards to diabetes, is that in general, African-Americans don't like to come to the doctor for various reasons. Yeah. And when we do come, it's at the last possible minute. Yeah. Or almost the last possible minute. So when you come, there's more complications associated with the fibroids. And so it makes the fibroids themselves seems like they're all so terrible Mm -hmm. when a lot of the times we're running around with small fibroids and have had no symptoms whatsoever. And they have not caused us any issue. Um, So when I talk to some patients about them and we've gotten some kind of imaging test, like an ultrasound, and I'll tell them, oh, you have a one centimeter fibroid. And like, oh, you know, they're they're shocked and they're scared and, and mm-hmm. like, well, wait a minute, it's a one centimeter fibroid, it's okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't mean that, you know, you're dying. We can wait and kind of take our time on how we wanna attack this issue if it's even causing this particular person an issue. Mm-hmm. But at the same time I have people showing up that haven't seen doctors in in years, haven't gotten their pap smear, and then all, they've got this big mass in their belly, mm. and come to find out they've got a ten centimeter fibroid that needs to be taken out. Wow! You know they waited. They waited. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they knew something was wrong because right. they were bleeding ridiculously. Right. Well, that's <laughs> what I was going to go to. Is what is you know? So some people may be asymptomatic, but what about those people that experience symptoms, but they just they're not sure that those are symptoms of possibly having a fibroid. So let's go back for a second. Okay. I, I kind of jumped a, a little bit. We need to explain what fibroids are. Okay, all right. Fibroids are muscle tissue. The uterus is a muscle, just like your heart is a muscle, your legs have muscles in them. It's a little bit different type of muscle, but fibroids are just muscle tissue that is distorted and non-functional. So they're not of themselves cancerous. Now, okay. in some cases, they can progress and mutate into that but that's on the more rare occasion majority of us have a those that do have fibroids have mm-hmm. benign fibroids mm-hmm. so they are almost a, a, a normal part of your body but just because this portion of the uterus has become abnormal it's not um, functional anymore and to explain what it looks and feels like because a lot of people don't have any idea I've mm-hmm. taken some out mm-hmm. they're usually pretty hard Mm. and vary in size, but their color is pretty white or off-white. And they're, they've got like a capsule, kind of a smooth covering to mm-hmm. them that you can slice and open and shell it out, mm-hmm. okay? So you can remove a fibroid and then put the rest of the uterus back together, mm. depending on the location and the size. So if we have smaller ones, we can possibly still have a normally functioning... Um, uh, reproductive life, you know, yes. if there are women that want to get pregnant or whatever, because they're small enough and they don't, I, I think when people hear fibroid, they automatically think hysterectomy. Yes. <laughs> but it sounds like they can still be removed and we can still have a healthy reproductive life if that's what yes. we desire. And in some cases, we choose not to remove them. Mm-hmm. We literally just wait and observe until the person actually has a problem because maybe they had some other issue that led to the imaging and we kind of ran up on this information oh by the way you have a fibroid Mm -hmm. and if they had no symptoms they didn't have a menstrual period complaint or anything to lead us to 
even yeah. investigate for it. Yeah. We just happened to find it because we were looking, looking for something else. Yeah, yeah. So in those cases, I'll tell a patient, yes, you have this, but we don't need to do anything about it. And that's okay for them just to sit and just, because sometimes do they always grow to be large or do they sometimes just sit and just stay that one or two centimeter? Like, does it? They usually do grow, but it takes a really long time in the majority of cases. So that's why there's typically no rush, mm. right? Unless they have some other particular symptom, then we try to figure out, is it something that we need to deal with right now? Or, you know, maybe it's big enough that it probably does need to come out, mm-hmm. but the consequences of the surgery may affect their fertility. So mm. then, you know, it's like, well, go ahead and get pregnant first and then deal with the with the fibroid afterwards. Oh, wow. In some cases, um, depending on the size or the location of the fibroid, we have to take care of the fibroid first before the person can attempt pregnancy. Mm, okay. So it just depends, obviously, on your particular situation. Right. I did have a, a someone emailed a question last night that asked, that said that that exact same thing. They had been diagnosed with a fibroid, but they were they wanted to get pregnant and they didn't know which option they should possibly choose. Should, or if there even was an option, should they have that removed first or should they get pregnant? So you can potentially get pregnant while you have a fibroid depending on the size and other factors yes yeah wow yeah so i mentioned location that is really important because if the fibroid is somewhere near the opening of the tube some uh interference with the travel of the egg and the sperm can Mm -hmm. occur Mm -hmm. Uh, and sometimes if the fibroid is in the lining it may cause a problem with implanting of this little baby so there's a, a bunch of different factors and gets pretty detailed, but it just varies on the woman's situation. Okay. All right. So we talked about what it is. Can we go back and talk symptoms so that people can at least kind of start to have things on their radar? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So um, typically symptoms are going to be related to the menstrual cycle and the amount of bleeding and maybe even some pain. So if women with bigger fibroids may tend to have some really heavy periods, sometimes women with smaller fibroids but based on their location can have some really painful and heavy bleeding Mm -hmm. sometimes it's prolonged so any menstrual bleeding that lasts longer than seven days that's not normal Mm, okay Okay? all right because some people are like well you know i just you know i just go (laughs) you know right it's not normal ladies (laughs) if you have to wear a pad and a tampon simultaneously yeah that is not a normal amount of bleeding yeah you need to to go even if the days are short that's not a normal amount of bleeding that yeah. needs to be investigated. Yeah. And the whole, the bottom line is, is that you have to go make sure that you're staying on top of your health, that you know your body. And if you haven't gone to a doctor and gotten some baseline testing, just something where you know, okay, this is my starting point. Yes. And now from here, I can keep an eye on what things are happening with my body. That's a good thing that you may want to do. You know, obviously when this COVID thing is over and things go back to normal because regular routine visits are probably out for the most part so but make sure that if you have it if you don't know where you stand and it doesn't matter what age if you don't know where you stand in regards to your health get some baseline testing get testing to you know talk to your doctor about your cycle and and how long it is and and what is the amount of bleeding you experience and things like that so you can know where to start and then from there you can start to keep an eye on what things are happening and you, the simplest thing you can do before you even get to your doctor's office is 
somehow track your periods mm, okay. either on your smartphone mm-hmm. or on a good old fashioned paper calendar whatever it is the method mm-hmm. just do it and then bring that information to the doctor's office because that's, that's what we're going to ask you as well do you have periods once a month do mm-hmm. they come on a regular consistent basis even if they're not once a month mm-hmm. and then how long do they last how much bleeding do you have so if you've got some background information then it makes the investigation that much easier once you get to the office okay all right we i kind of jumped into things we're going to take a quick break but when we come back we're going to start from the very beginning we're going to talk we talked about anatomy before we go any further we're going to just talk about our basic female anatomy I told you, you might want to tell the kids to go watch some cartoons this morning. Or if you're afraid to have the conversation, make them listen. Right, right, (laughs) right. We're going to talk about it. That's true, especially if you have daughters that you haven't had conversations with or you feel uncomfortable. This could be the place for you to start having that conversation. This is Full Circle. Keep it right here. We'll be right back in just a few moments uh, with more with Dr. Akiba Green. Keep it right here. Like what you hear? Drop us a line at fullcircle975 at gmail.com. Empowering women through conversation. This is what she does. She's Miss Wanda, and this is Full Circle. We're back. Thank you so much for staying with the program. This is Full Circle. I am your host, Miss Wanda, having a wonderful conversation with my guest, Dr. Akiba Green. She is an OBGYN, and she is here to answer your questions. Now, you may want to send the kitties out the room because we might get to talking about something that you may not want them to hear. Or if you have a daughter, a niece, uh, or another female family member that you kind of feel uncomfortable talking about uh, your female productive health and um, anatomy, bring them in. We can help usher you into the conversation. That's what I'm here for. I got your back, sisters. So that is what we're doing today. We're talking to Dr. Akiva Green, um, and we are talking reproductive health for women um, and and all that entails. And and we're going to go all the way back. We jumped in. We started talking about fibroids, but we got to go back because... We're going to just talk basic anatomy, right, Akiba? Just anatomy. Yes. <laughs> yes. Why, why did you feel that this is something that we needed to talk about? Because there have been so many patients that have come in and are really vague and just nondescript about what their problem is uh-huh. and will say something like, well, it hurts down there. Uh-huh. And instead of telling me I have a bump that's burning on my labia I have to do a lot of probing and investigating for the person to actually open up and say what their problem is yeah and even I get patients that will call the office to make an appointment because they've got some problem down there Uh and they won't tell the staff what the problem Mm. is because they're too embarrassed or they Mm. feel like the appointment making staff is none of their business where really it has nothing to do with them being nosy Mm -hmm. it it's a matter of how do they schedule the appointment. Right, <laughs> right. Know? They want to know basically enough information. Do they need a 15-minute appointment? Is this a 30-minute appointment? Mm-hmm. Is there a procedure involved? Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we're asking for some information, please just answer the question. Yeah, yeah. we <laughs> got to get over the stigma of embarrassment, especially when it comes to that area. It's like you can't just, you know, like you said, be vague because... I might schedule you for 10 minutes or a 15 minute appointment, but you actually need more because, you know, people get in the door and and I'm sure this has happened to you because I've done this to my doctor. I I totally (laughs) I'll come in and be like, well, yeah. And then I'll start going, well, really, actually, 
this is what's happening. And yes. then it turns into something more. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, ladies, it, it, it's okay. It's a we. In order for us to advocate for our health, we at, we need to do two things. We need to be descriptive of what is happening, but we also need to know what's happening and what body parts are involved. Yes. That's a big thing. And I, I do think there's a lot of women who honestly don't know. Yeah, just don't know the terms for their anatomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point, of course, we had to have sexual education in school, but there were parents who didn't want their kids to get that, Yeah, you know, and didn't sign that form on the permission slip, mm-hmm. or they said that they didn't want their children to have that. They mm-hmm. wanted to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. And then these were the same parents that didn't have a whole lot of education right. themselves because older generations didn't talk about it and mm-hmm. still don't. Mm-hmm. If I've got an elderly woman that comes in, it's very often that she won't tell me that she has a problem. She looks embarrassed. She'll cover her face mm-hmm. as she's laid there on the table while we're trying to do her pelvic exam mm-hmm. um, or, you know, try and squeeze their legs, close them together because yeah. they just can't relax enough to get the examination done. Yeah. Where, you know, I just feel like we need to start being more open about these kinds of things and learning and educating ourselves so it's not as uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And sure, I mean, there's nothing comfortable about having your pap smear or having a pelvic exam. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to, you know, say it should be comfortable. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying you should be able to handle it and tolerate it and explain what's going on with you and also understand what I'm seeing when I'm explaining to you you have a particular problem. Mm -hmm. But if I'm giving terms that you don't understand, then it doesn't make any sense because then you're going to walk away from the appointment not understanding what's going on or why I'm making a certain recommendation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Plug your ears. Plug your (laughs) ears. Vagina. First, let's just say it. We've we've said it on the airwaves because a lot of women don't like to say the word even. No, no. It's just they stutter. Yeah. And they say vagina. It's well, yeah. down there, yeah. that part. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Inside, anything but the word vagina. Yeah, and it's not even what people think it is either. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so externally is not the vagina. Right. Outside, it was what we call the vulva in mm-hmm. general. Mm-hmm. And then when you break down the vulva, it has its own specific parts. Then once you get inside, that's where you're actually in the vagina. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Um. so I have a a website I found for some of us to just take a look at. Mm -hmm. If you go to plannedparenthood.org, spell it all out, plannedparenthood.org, and search the section for female anatomy, you should get to the website, uh, what are the parts of the female sexual anatomy? And they have a nice... um, video at the beginning but then there's also some pictures and some reading it's very Mm -hmm. generic but it gives you enough information so that you can say okay I think I understand Mm -hmm. what they're talking about but what I also I would recommend if you don't understand go in the bathroom yeah take this with you that's the other thing and take a mirror and take a look at yourself. That's and the try other to point thing. out the things that are on this website on your own body so that you know 
<laughs> what's a clitoris? What's a labia? Right. All of these people. I, you know, I, well, I was going to say you'd be surprised, but you wouldn't. You're a doctor. You probably experience <laughs> this all the time. But I, 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 wa- I watch TV. I'm just going to refer to TV. Um, I was watching this show called Little Fires Everywhere. And there was a scene where they were talking about the vagina monologues. Did you see that? No, I didn't see that yeah. episode. I'm so they were talking about the vagina monologues and Carrie Washington and Reese Witherspoon were having this conversation. They're the main characters. And Carrie was like, you've never seen it? And she was like, no, why would I? Oh, God. But that's really how people feel. Like people think that your vaginal area is the most... Like they're just embarrassed to, you know, embarrassed to talk about it, embarrassed to even look at it or know what their particular body looks like. Yeah. Or just to touch themselves. Right. I mean, I just this also leads into hygiene. Yeah. I need you to clean yourself before you come see me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You heard it from the doctor, (laughs) y'all. <laughs> I understand people come after work in the middle of the work day. Just That's take a moment. But <laughs> head to the restroom first. Yeah, yeah. Give us the urine specimen and please just wipe yourself down. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> you heard it from the doctor, y'all. So make sure you go do that. But it's really important that you know what your body looks like. I'll post that, uh, the link to the Planned Parenthood website on the Full Circle page. Um, it has a really cute video, but the video makes a point of of showing you your different body parts. Again, it has some very descriptive, um, it talks about the other parts of the body uh, of the reproductive health system. And so I want to just go over some of that. We didn't already said vagina. I'm probably going to get a phone call in a minute. But I want to go to, <laughs> to your cervix, okay. um, your uterus, so your fallopian tubes. Internal and your, parts. Yeah, yeah all of those internal down. parts because when we have problems, a lot of times that's you know where we'll experience the problems. Um, I know... Um, a friend of mine had endometriosis uh, really bad, and I know that that affects those parts. So let's talk about what are the fallopian tubes and all of the, the ovaries, all of those things. Okay. So let's start with the, the ovaries. Typically, you're going to have one ovary on each side. The ovaries are hormone-producing areas, okay? These hormones that are produced are being told to do so by certain areas in the brain. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is where you'll get some of your estrogen, your testosterone, um, and various other types of hormones that we don't need to get into that much detail, but mm-hmm. that's the hormone production site. Okay. It's also where the eggs are made and formed. They are, when we're born, we already have follicles. Mm-hmm. That's a technical term for the eggs Mm -hmm. okay when we're born as newborn we already have them and then as we progress in age they start to mature some of them die (laughs) they've ultimately all of them die which Mm -hmm. is when we get into menopause and there's no more production of those hormones Mm -hmm. okay um but as you have a produced egg that's growing and maturing each cycle. And for some of us, that cycle is every month. Not everybody is every month. Mm-hmm. But as it grows and it gets ready, then it becomes ovulated. I mean, it is pushed out or kicked out of the ovary. Then the fallopian tubes have little fingers. Okay. These are called fimbria. These fingers actually are close to the ovary. And so they pick up the egg and help that egg move through the rest of the fallopian tube. The tube itself, it is um, long and skinny. Maybe look at your pinky. It might be a little bit longer and a little bit thinner than your pinky. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it moves. It's got muscles inside of it that can squeeze and kind of help the egg 
make its way into the uterus cavity. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so if you're trying to get pregnant, we're hoping that this egg is going to meet up with some sperm mm-hmm. in the fallopian tube and start to form a little baby that's going to implant into the wall of the uterus. So the baby is actually formed in the fallopian tube. The beginnings of it, yes. Oh, okay. And then that's, so when it doesn't travel is when we have the etopic pregnancy. Yes. That's when it implants in the wall of the fallopian tube, Mm -hmm. or even if it doesn't get into the fallopian tube, it can be in the ovary, it can be in the abdomen, Mm -hmm. and implants anywhere outside of the uterus. That's called ectopic. Okay. Okay. And that is very highly dangerous. Yes, that is a life-threatening emergency. Okay. And and when women, sorry to derail, but just kind of getting on the, you said ectopic, I want to say it correctly. Okay, ectopic pregnancy. When we have, um, when women experience that, they experience regular symptoms of being pregnant, but there's no way to know until it ruptures or how does that, how how is that discovered? Yeah, so women, you know, just they get the same positive pregnancy test. They mm-hmm. get excited or maybe not, depending on their situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you don't necessarily know right away. You just think that you're pregnant. And f- in most cases, you mm-hmm. assume it's going to be a normally implanted, normally located and progressing pregnancy. Yeah. Um, women start to get some symptoms depending on when they get into the office first. You know, they may have symptoms of pain and bleeding Mm -hmm. before they come into the office, okay? Now, you mentioned a ruptured ectopic. Mm -hmm. The rupture happens after the pregnancy has grown so much that it's caused whatever organ that it's implanted in or Mm -hmm. on Mm -hmm. to burst, Mm -hmm. okay? So, obviously, your fallopian tube is not meant to expand like a uterus. It's not built that way. Yeah. So, when it does start to expand, it kind of fills up, um, think like, blowing up a balloon mm-hmm. okay and if you blow it up too much it's gonna pop that's what a ruptured ectopic is it pops and then you have some crazy amount of bleeding because mm-hmm. your blood supply to the uterus and the tubes and the ovaries is wonderful it's abundant mm-hmm. and then when you add a pregnancy on top of that this got increasing the amount of blood flow mm-hmm. so when the tube we're going to assume it's a tube when it ruptures there's a lot of blood that spills into the abdomen and Mm -hmm. blood inside the abdomen causes severe pain okay okay so there may be now this is on the extreme case some people have some milder symptoms um but usually as it doesn't go away it's pain that's constant it doesn't matter what position you're in um you can't get rid of it with a bath tylenol and ibuprofen are not going to help you Mm -hmm. (laughs) okay Mm -hmm. laying down is not going to fix the problem it's just persistent and then eventually it gets worse and worse and then you're going to have to at least make some kind of a call and figure out you know do you call your doctor if you don't have a doctor do Mm -hmm. you just go into the emergency room Mm -hmm. um you know, you got to start to think about, did I have a period this last month? Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Am I on time? Am I late? Or, you know, what else could this be? Because it, it could be an appendix issue. It could be completely yeah. something different. Mm-hmm. But the only way to figure it out is to come into the office. You're not going to know that you have an ectopic pregnancy at home. Right. So when you say uh, someone has you know, taking the pregnancy test, they've come up, it's come positive, um, and they, you know, everything's going along, they start experiencing pain, they go in, can you see what's happening um, by ultrasound? Can, at, at, at that point, can you tell that, okay, 
the pregnancy test came back positive, but there's nothing in the uterine area. Right. Okay. Yeah. So we have to use multiple modalities and sometimes it takes us a couple of different ultrasounds a few days apart mm-hmm. or several different um, HCG pregnancy hormone tests to figure it out. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody doesn't have the severe symptoms and we haven't seen it yet on the ultrasound, we may know that it's not a normal pregnancy. And so that person gets put under much closer surveillance. We're like, okay, this is not jiving with what you told me when your last period was. Mm -hmm. So we need to do some closer investigation. So make sure you're giving me the right phone number. (laughs) We can contact you. Make sure your mailbox is not full. So if I'm calling, I can leave you a message. Yeah. You know, and if um, if need be, sometimes we just observe the patients in the hospital. If we're not certain or we don't feel comfortable that they've got enough resources to be mm-hmm. at home and get back and forth to the hospital, mm-hmm. then we may just say, you know what, you just need to stay here for a day or two and we'll observe and see what happens. Oh, OK. All right. So that's a that's an option as well. I think the most important thing to take away from this part of the conversation, uh, listeners, is that if you do come up with a positive pregnancy test, just make sure you go in and make sure you get checked and make sure everything is good. Yes. Then you can know <laughs> how to proceed from there. Exactly. Right? As soon as you get that positive pregnancy test, you need to celebrate the moment. Right. Right. <laughs> or <laughs> <Be> not. happy. <laughs> right. Or not. <laughs> Whatever the situation is. Uh Um, But, you know, get yourself together and then you need to make a phone call and say, okay, I need to make an appointment to get in and be seen and assessed. Yeah. Because, too, the earlier you start with all of your prenatal um, care, is that's the best thing for you and for your child. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I'm sorry. I derailed us off of our internal uh, exam of ourselves and what are our body parts. Another question that um, I got was, and and it kind of goes along with what our conversation was. So you're talking about how the egg matures. It comes down through the fallopian tubes Mm -hmm. and it it comes into the uterus. Yes. Is that what an actual period is? Because what a lot of people don't really understand what a period is. Is it the egg? Is it the lining? What is a period? Right. Right. So the egg, assuming the egg has met up with the sperm, is going to implant on the lining of the uterus. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's going to grow and progress into this normal pregnancy. Mm-hmm. When there isn't a sperm that's met, mm-hmm. the egg just kind of flows still into the uterus and the lining has been built up and thickened and prepared. But there's nothing there to stimulate further growth. Mm-hmm. And so that lack that information says, okay, well, we don't need this. So we're going to get rid of the egg. We're going to get rid of all this extra tissue. And that's where the blood flow comes. Okay. 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 So that is like a sloughing of the, the uterine lining area. of the uterus. Okay. All right. Now I'm going to kind of go to this question that I got uh, received by email. And if you have a question, fam, you can give us a call at 916-921-5333. I started taking birth. This is a a question, y'all. This isn't me. This is a question that was emailed to me. I started taking birth control pills at 15. I am now 32 and would like to have a baby. Will it be hard for me to get pregnant? How how long should I wait to get off the pill? Uh, Excuse me. How long should I wait once I get off the pill to start trying? So, you know, the reason I wanted to bring that up is because I know with our periods, right? Mm -hmm. So our body's kind of sloughing off that lining of the uterus. So birth control, how does that work in regards to all of the other systematic things that are happening? So there's lots of different types of birth control. So they're 
methods of effectiveness are different. Mm -hmm. I think this particular person mentioned that they were on a birth control pill. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about pills, their intent is to prevent ovulation. So it's preventing that egg from being released out of the ovary altogether. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the egg still grows inside the ovary and it dies inside the ovary. It's just not used. Mm -hmm. That's assuming everything is functioning and it's that method is working for that person. That's how it's meant to work is to prevent ovulation. So if it's preventing ovulation, there's no way that when you have sex, you're going to get pregnant. Right. Okay. However, it's still giving you the hormones. It's also um, decreasing or kind of taking over the ovaries, normal hormone production. Mm -hmm. So when we're giving you the hormones from the pills, we're overriding the ovary and saying, ovary, you don't have to work right now. Go Mm -hmm. to rest. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. And so then we're giving ourselves these external source of hormones and we're giving it on a cycle. And then at the end, usually there's a placebo pills, the ones that don't have any kind of medication in them, Mm -hmm. then that's the withdrawal of the hormones. So on a typical menstrual cycle, your hormone levels fluctuate. They increase and they decrease at certain times of this month. So what we've done with the pills is try to recreate that. We've given you an increase in hormones, and in those last few pills that don't have any hormones, that's the drop or the decrease in the amount of hormone levels, and that's what triggers you to have a period. Okay. So in her question, so she's taken these pills for quite a long time. She was 15. Now she's 32. She wants to have a baby. Is there anything, because she's taken that pill for so long, is there any adjustment period? Because it sounds the ovaries have just kind of like been on vacation for like 15 years, right? (laughs) Right. So now she, and I'm sure this is common with women, is once they get off the pill and they want to have a child, is, do they? Do you find that uh, women have a harder time conceiving, uh, even not even no. necessarily the pill, off of any birth control? Yeah. So off the, again, the types of birth control, honestly, it really does make a difference okay. that the person has been on. Um, but once you've been on some kind of a birth control, we expect that you can take up to one year to actually conceive. Okay, that is a normal amount of time to wait before we do any kind of intervention or say that you have infertility or anything like that. Okay, Mm -hmm. that's assuming that you still have normal menstrual cycles without the the birth control method. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, you need to be ready to get pregnant as soon as you stop the pills. If you're not ready, don't stop the pill. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) because there's a possibility that your body (laughs) you can get pregnant within that first cycle. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And there's nothing. So shots, all of that. I know there's shots and patches and oh, all kinds man, of things. There's a gamut. Yeah. All with all of those hormones and things kind of overriding everything. We we should be okay. It should take us up to a year, right, to finally be able to conceive. After that, then we may want to ask the doctor for more intervention or to do more investigation to see if there's something happening. That's correct. Okay. All right. All right. So call. Uh, Email your questions as well to me at fullcircle975 at gmail.com or you can give us a call at 916-921-5333. We're having a conversation on reproductive health with Dr. Akiba Green. Family, this is a conversation that if you are afraid to have the conversation with your young ladies, um, the people in your life, older people, whatever, have those conversations. Be, able, be Know what you're, what's going on with your body so that you can advocate for yourself. That's 
what it's all about. It's not about embarrassing anyone. It's about making sure that when you go to the doctor, you know what's going on with your body. You can tell them correctly, absolutely what's happening so that you can get the care that you need. Um, we, I want to go back to birth control just a little bit more because uh, there's always, it seems like there's a conflict between mothers and daughters and mm. that whole birth control <laughs> conversation, yes, right? Yes. I don't want to give my daughter birth control because that means that she'll want to have sex or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Or feel, feel like it gives her the freedom right. to have sex. Right, right, right. Or permission. But oftentimes, too, you do put young ladies on birth control for other reasons. Is that correct? Absolutely. The most common reason is because we're trying to regulate a menstrual cycle. And so the easiest thing to do and the cheapest thing to do is to start a birth control pill Mm -hmm. to give somebody a regular timed cycle that's something predictable versus, you know, especially the younger women where they're kind of just starting and there can be a lot of irregular timing in the beginning Mm -hmm. that's just associated with that period of change. Yeah. Okay. And then as that woman grows or the teenager grows she may regulate on her own Mm -hmm. but a lot of times there's actually something else going on i think someone had mentioned they wanted to talk about polycystic ovarian syndrome Mm -hmm. okay so that's a common finding um when women do have irregular periods and it doesn't matter the age they can be 35 and still having three to six months gaps between their menses Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot more to it than that, but that's one of the common reasons that we put somebody on a birth control regimen as well, not just because they're trying to, you know, (laughs) they're being fast and we're trying to prevent them from getting pregnant. (laughs) Right, right. There's so much more. Well, so let's talk about PCOS. What exactly is that? All right. So PCOS stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome and syndrome in that there's multiple parts to this. Mm -hmm. One of the parts of it is irregular periods. Mm -hmm. Another part of it is hormone imbalance. And another part of it could be high blood pressure. Uh, Another part of it is insulin resistance. I mean, there's Mm. so many different aspects to this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, of course, there can be a fertility component. Because the woman is not having a regular menses, so she's not ovulating on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And we call it polycystic because when we look at a picture of the ovaries in a woman who has PCOS, they look like they have multiple little cysts in the ovaries. Okay? okay. And really, they're not cysts. Cysts, unfortunately, get a bad rap. They're not always bad. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. We just have given them that name because we have to figure out what to call this thing on this picture. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It's a cyst. Right? Okay. So we got polycystic looking ovaries. And so they have kind of a characteristic appearance. The ovaries are kind of oval shaped. Um, and then it's like a string of pearls around the edge mm-hmm. or outer portion of the ovary. Okay. And they all are about the same size versus someone who has normal appearing ovaries will probably have one larger cyst Mm -hmm. (laughs) at some point in their cycle and that's because that's the one that's getting ready to ovulate in the polycystic ovary there's not necessarily always a dominant follicle or the one that's getting ready to ovulate it's not always 
evident. Okay. So what kind of um, symptoms would someone with PCOS or what what is the result of having it other than the, the periods being irregular? What are some of the other things that could be symptoms of having PCOS? So th- the things that I see, like if I'm walking on the street, I might say, oh, she looks like she has PCOS. Um, just by seeing her fully closed. Wow. <laughs> this hair growth, body shape. Mm, okay. Okay. <laughs> and then darkening to certain areas of the skin. Mm. So I know my mom used to tell me about her elbows. She used to always think there was something wrong with that uh-huh. black part on her elbows. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's also an area at the back of the neck, mm-hmm. the back of the neck, excuse me. And it looks a little bit velvety and it's just darkened skin. And mm-hmm. it's, a little bit difficult to tell in African-American women. So that's not always the first thing to see. Yeah. Um, but hair growth, like on the lips, mm, mm-hmm. just above the, over the lip, mm-hmm. they may have what we call hirsutism or increased amount of hair. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and then, of course, it's evident in other areas, too, that I wouldn't necessarily see on the street. But yeah. during an office examination or something like that, um, there's a shape to our pubic hair. Women typically have the upside down triangle, mm-hmm. but somebody with PCOS or extra hormones from uh, the testosterone related to it can have more of a diamond shape mm. of hair, mm-hmm. and we call it a male escutcheon and a female escutcheon. Mm-hmm. So it's just the appearance and the shapes are different. Yeah. Wow. Whew, that's a, that's a lot. I'm gonna go. You mentioned something about body shape too. How much does weight play in the health of our? Um... It's a huge factor. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of people don't think about it that way because they see somebody else that's overweight. Oh well, she got pregnant, no problem. Right. And so and so got pregnant, and I know so and so over here yeah. got pregnant. Um, so it's not always. A limiting factor, mm-hmm. but it definitely makes a difference. If you lose 10 pounds, your menstrual cycles, I guarantee you, will be different. <laughs> wow. Just that little bit of a shift. Yeah. It can make a big difference in the timing. Is that because of the hormones and all of those? Like, what would weight loss have to do with it? Well, so there's more than one type of estrogen made in the body. Okay. Okay. And the storage forms. Um fat cells store type of estrogen. It's not exactly the same one that's produced from the ovary, Mm -hmm. but if your hormone balance is such that you're getting more estrogen from your fat cells than you are Mm. from your ovary, and especially like I like to give a person a a picture of if your weight is increasing, you're getting more of this extra storage here, Mm -hmm. then you kind of override the, the normal monthly cycle of what your ovaries are doing, the estrogen increases and it decreases, and Mm -hmm. the next month it increases and it decreases. Well, if you're just increasing your weight, or if you're staying overweight, you're not having that drop in the estrogen, you're not getting the withdrawal of the Mm -hmm. hormone that makes you have a period. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. I was going to ask something, but we'll go into the break and then come back, because that kind of leads me into the whole post- um, I almost said postpartum, postmenstrual age, right? And you're starting to go into the menopause area, and they do talk about increased belly mm-hmm. uh, weight or weight gain. So uh, keep it right here, family. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, more with Dr. Akiba Green. This is Full Circle. We'll be right back. Like and share our Facebook page at Full Circle 97.5. It's not just talk when you put it into action. Empowering women through conversation 
with Miss Wanda. And this is Full Circle. I'm having better conversation with Dr. Green outside of of what you guys are hearing, but it's all good. We'll, we'll talk about some stuff on the air. Uh, thank you for joining us. It is Full Circle. I am talking to Dr. Akiba Green about our reproductive health. That's how we're doing it today. And so when we left for the break, we started to talk about, we were talking about the, the effects that weight may have on our reproductive health um, in regards to, we talked about getting pregnant, but just in our overall health, even in our periods and stuff, right? That weight takes on a huge factor. Weight is very important. Um, It can increase your risk for diabetes. If you're overweight, increase your risk for high blood pressure. And now we're talking about having effects on your menstrual cycles as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. So it's important. It's not something to just push by the wayside. We're not telling you to exercise and eat right yeah. for no reason. Right, right, <laughs> right. That it does really take a toll on your body. Um, is, is there an instance, I, I did have a, a friend long time ago um, that he, she had gained an, a significant amount of weight and her periods stopped altogether. Mm-hmm. That, so that's something that, that... Commonly happens. Really? Yeah. And on the flip side of that, let's say the person who has lost quite a bit of weight all of a sudden gets pregnant and was like, well, I didn't think I could get pregnant. How is this possible? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know? right. Well, you lost some weight and you started ovulating again. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that shift and you talked about just as little as maybe 10 pounds can be a difference in your body kind of getting back to regulating itself correctly. Yeah. And, you know, it just depends on that woman's particular balance yeah. setup. But it's common. We kind of discovered after um, the popularity of bariatric surgeries mm. for weight loss, yeah. a lot of women would accidentally get pregnant. Yeah, because <laughs> you know? now their body's back regulating or, you know, being more They had more a dramatic regular. weight loss uh-huh. shift. They started ovulating again. And they weren't ready for it. They just wanted to lose the weight. I mean, maybe there was some hope that they would get pregnant in the future, but that wasn't part of the immediate plan because their immediate plan is to continue to lose weight. Mm -hmm. And then they figure out that they're pregnant and that they're about to gain some weight because they're pregnant. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And they get disappointed and, and frustrated. But at the same time, they're, you know, it's like, well, I'm, I guess I'll be happy because ultimately I wanted <laughs> right just wasn't ready right now yeah <laughs> that's why it's so important for you to stay on top of your health and know what your body is doing you know and and being on top of what how your body works everyone's body is different so knowing how your particular body works we um, started talking a little bit about the well we talked about body fat um, but also I know I see uh, increased belly fat associated with menopause what, why would that happen or why, why is that? So your metabolism is changing. Just general, generally as we increase in age, mm-hmm. it, it changes. Like I've, in our 40s, we're definitely not the same as we were in our 20s. Right, we all feel, right, you know? right. So the Darn same it. thing. <laughs> the same thing continues to happen <laughs> as your metabolic rates tend to decrease. Um, but then also your life patterns have changed you know when you're in menopause you may or may not be working or if you are working maybe you're not doing the same amount of work or same Mm -hmm. types of work that you were doing before so it's all lifestyle and it's not there's nothing that you can do to say 
just prevent all of that other than continuing a healthy lifestyle, mm-hmm. but there's still going to be some changes, you know? Mm-hmm. So if you were already exercising five times a week and eating healthy with all your servings of fruits and vegetables mm-hmm. and lean meats and things like that, then there's nothing really to change, but your body is still going to go through some changes. Mm-hmm. So well, let's go back and talk about what is menopause, because when you hear it, you hear the jokes about the hot flashes and people, you know, now I'm getting old, I'm over the hill, all of these kind of things. First, what is it, first of all? The menopause is basically you. a woman has stopped having periods for at least 12 months, consecutive months, no bleeding whatsoever for mm-hmm. a year. Mm-hmm. OK, um, and so there is a transition before a woman gets to that point. So there's regular monthly menstrual cycles, and then you have this perimenopause. Mm -hmm. And that transition stage is where a lot of people get confused. Mm. Menopause tends to be much more clear. It's the perimenopause where people are like, what is going on with me? Okay. Because it's like they're irregular. They may have a period one month and not. Yeah. Okay. Or maybe they've gone six, seven months, and they haven't had a period, and like, woohoo, they they thought they were free. And Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden something shows up, and they're like, oh, God, what's wrong with me? Mm -hmm. And then when it shows up, maybe it lasts for 10 days instead of their typical mm. four or five days mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they haven't had one for so long. Right, right. <laughs> a little bit of extra built up. Okay. So, But that's when you have to actually go into your doctor and kind of figure out, is it your normal or is there actually something wrong? Mm-hmm. And so that can lead to a lot of extra testing. You get ultrasound testing, you get hormone blood draws, and you may even end up with uh, biopsies. Mm-hmm other types of examinations inside the uterus or maybe a surgery like a, what's called a hysteroscopy where we're putting a camera inside the uterus to look and see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's a lot of physical change, but then you mentioned the hot flashes. Mm-hmm. Not every woman gets hot flashes. Okay. So 10 to 20% of women may be lucky and not have to deal with them. Uh-huh. <laughs> or, you know, they're very, very mild. Yeah. Uh, some women get it to where they're just extreme and it, they just can't tolerate it. And so we end up having to figure out how to help them. And maybe that's starting them on some hormones to kind of regulate again. And it could honestly be in that perimenopause. It could be a birth control pill that we use or something, some combination that's similar to a setup of a birth control pill. Because that hot flash is is just like, is it a surge of your... I, I've... I haven't experienced those, but I've seen some people that it's like <laughs> zero to 60 in a matter of moments, right. and I feel so bad for them. So is it just like a surge of hormone? Like, what is your body reacting to? It's not necessarily a surge of hormones. We call it vasomotor symptoms, too. So it actually does have a lot to do with your blood vessels. Uh-huh. And we can control them with some types of blood pressure medication as oh, okay. well. So that's why it kind of depends on what the person's situation, but we can actually work on that from various different aspects. So, yeah, it, it does feel like a heat that's coming in uh, somewhat sudden onset. Uh-huh. And it can last several minutes, mm-hmm. but yes, it can come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, good. The other thing is you can trigger more hot flashes based on some of your dietary <laughs> intake. Oh, okay. So people who tend to drink more alcohol, tend mm-hmm. to drink more caffeine, may have more hot flashes than the person who doesn't drink those things. Yeah. 
Okay. So we can start to control those symptoms based on making some dietary changes as well. But you have to know what's happening in order to be able to make those changes. So that means that if you're experiencing it, okay, notice it. Next time you experience it, start to look back. It's kind of like, I'm just going to go back to the COVID, the tracing, right? (laughs) Trace back to what you (laughs) ate or what you did. And that may have possibly triggered that. And then keep an eye on that for the next time. Maybe if you drink that caffeine or whatever. Mm-hmm. Maybe you keep an eye on those things so that you know what's happening for the next time. I just feel bad when I see people. I have seen some Look people that be like, going, yeah, the fans, I mean, sweat literally by, pouring down their by face. fans for their desks oh, at work. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, I just feel so bad for my, my people that when I see that happening. But yeah, so that, so, so menopause is your body stop making the hormone or just the eggs or both? Both. Or, okay. Both. Okay. So you stop making the hormones. No more estrogen production is happening. Okay. No more eggs. No more estrogen. And could that be the reason that the body fat around the belly increases because of the lower estrogen? Uh, Not necessarily the estrogen itself, but like I mentioned earlier, there are other hormones that are produced by the ovaries too in smaller Mm -hmm. amounts, but the balance has changed because Mm -hmm. that's now gone. So then the body has to re-regulate itself. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So there's definitely some multiple internal processes that work together. Okay. And then what about HRT, home hormone replacement therapy for people? Is that for people that are in menopause that still need to keep a balance? Like what is Not HRT? Necessarily. Okay. So HRT is hormone replacement therapy or HT is hormone therapy. There was a distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically the concept is the same as trying to replace the hormones that the ovary is no longer making. Okay. Okay. Because the woman is having some symptoms of this either perimenopause or menopause. So we can start the HRT in that perimenopause because it's unpredictable. The best way we have to predict someone's, uh, status for menopause Uh is by looking at the first degree relative like if they've got an older sister or Mm -hmm. their mother finding out how old they were when they went into spontaneous menopause okay if they did let's take this call all right 97.5 hello uh yes this is sister circle is that correct uh it is full circle yes the full circle Uh okay i had a question for dr even i couldn't get through because i was driving at the time okay and i had I had a serious question because I don't think I'm getting the correct answers from uh, white GYNs. I'm not sure. Okay. I have a Go ahead and ask your question. She's listening. Okay. This I have a ingrown follicle hair okay. on my right vulva, and it's been ongoing for some years now, about four years. And it keeps getting infected and swelling. And it seems like it's like a little hard lump. Okay. And I am getting very concerned. The GYN at Kaiser told me she would laser she would laser it off. Okay. Well, uh, so I guess and, I'm concerned that it's lasted t- so long and it hasn't already been done. <laughs> What kinds of things have you had done to it already? Um, basically nothing. She just says I just have to keep warm baths um, and keep the area clean. And like I was just listening to your radio show, 
um, listening how the hairs might grow into that diamond shape mm-hmm. right there by the by the you know the top of the vulva. Yeah. So and I'm just very hairy, and w- once I shave it, I get a problem there. And <laughs> that's the trigger right there. <laughs> Of the shaving. <laughs> Let's talk about shaving. Okay. <laughs> shaving and waxing and all that. I think it it has become a lot more popular, um, but it's not without risk. Okay. Just like if you shave your legs and you use the same old repeated razor, you can cause yourself more problems by actually giving yourself infections. Okay. So when you shave any body part, you're making cuts. And so the skin itself is breaking. Your intent may be to only get the hair off, but more than that is actually occurring. You're getting deeper into the the skin. And so when you have basically an open wound, then you're prone to infection. Because you also think about what happens throughout your day, if you're exercising or doing your normal housework, you start to break a sweat. And your sweat glands open and you get um, your cloning, your material there. You get inflammatory response into any of those open areas. Okay, so you can actually cause yourself to have more problems. So if I have a patient come in that actually has what sounds like you're describing like a hair follicle infection, I tell them to stop. Let it go. I did stop. (laughs) For a little while. I I did stop, but I still felt a little hard bump into that right lip of that vulva. I, I still felt that hard bump. It's still a hard little like a... So have hmm. you seen another provider yet? I've seen about 10 different GYNs at Kaiser. Hmm. And um, they all just, they did a biopsy. They did hmm. everything and said it's a hair follicle. It's very embedded into my skin there. Okay, well then it sounds like you need to go back in and really advocate for yourself that this has been an ongoing long-term process and the multiple treatments that have been tried are not effective and you keep getting a recurrence of the issue and that you need to take the next step. And so that sounds like you probably need a surgical procedure, but I can't say for certain without looking at you. I just would have to say you need to be firm. Right. And that time where you need to get back in there and say this is not not working for me. I've seen too many pr- providers and I'm not getting a resolution of this issue. Right. And it's starting to be very uncomfortable, you know, uh, and I wear the cotton panties to keep it comforting, cool. I keep it some soothing aloe vera on it. It's just really getting very uncomfortable. And they always say at Kaiser, okay, you know, black people always have hair follicles. They said that this is this is an African American issue. And uh, at at five years ago, I failed to believe that. But as I did more research for myself, I do see that this is a it's a problem where we're very hairy down there. You may need to go and advocate to or go to see uh, someone outside of your network if that's something possible. It's if if, yeah. if if you've gone to that particular health establishment and they and you're not getting what you need to, in order to rectify the situation, you may need to go outside of your network and see another outside physician. So, um, you know, Dr. Green had has given you some recommendations about advocating for yourself and 
thinking about, you know, maybe even taking the next step. Maybe it does. Maybe it's the fall, hair follicle that does need to be removed or whatever it is. But if you, in order for you to be comfortable with whatever that is, whatever's happening, you may need to go outside of your network in order to get another opinion um, instead of getting the same thing over and over and over again. So... Well, the other thing you need to do is within Kaiser, you need to advocate and say, I need to speak to the department director. Like, I need to have an appointment with the higher ups, not just, you know, whoever is available. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you've seen multiple providers within that same system and you're not getting a resolution of the issue, they need to know that they have a problem. Right, exactly. That's what I said. Now, see, Dr. Green, I'm a scientist, and that's when it started really getting to me. Like, you're you're shoving me off. You're, 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 giving, yeah. you're just feeding me information. And I said to my GYN, I've been with you for 11 years, yeah. and what I want you to do is send me to a specialist. But she keeps saying, okay, no, this is a procedure I can do in my office. But... I'm not certain of that. Yeah, I'm not. No. I'm not feeling comfortable with that. And if you don't feel yeah. comfortable, then don't then do it and proceed other avenues. Yeah. Thank you so much for calling with this issue. I really appreciate okay. it. I wish you the Thanks. best. And like like Dr. Green said, you may want to see the department head, Depart- or you may want to go outside of your network if that's possible. Right. The, the head department of the director. Okay. Yes. yes that's yes. what I'm going to do here Monday because it's getting uncomfortable yeah. for me. I'm just. Uh, yeah, I'm feeling, we don't I'm want you to that. suffer, sis. No. We do not want you to suffer. So thank you so much for calling. Keep okay. us posted on what happens, okay? I sure will, okay? Thank you, ladies, you. so thank much. You Have so a much. wonderful day. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. She brings up a really good point, though, in that you have to keep advocating for yourself, that sometimes your doctor is just going to brush you off. And sometimes your doctor is just going to say, well, you know, black people tend to have more X, Y, Z. Right. And just blame it on the race. Right. Not think that they need to do anything about it, which is completely unfair. Right. So, sure, maybe we may have more hair follicles. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that there's not a treatment. If they don't know that. Yeah. What the obstacle the options are or they don't feel comfortable then they need to be honest and say so right and say that you need to see somebody else mm-hmm. not just brush it under the rug yeah yeah we're going to take a quick break when we come back we're going to talk more about female reproductive health dr akiba green it is full circle keep it right here we will be right back after this like what you hear drop us a line at full circle 975 at gmail.com and she is back empowering you with knowledge and wisdom this is Full Circle with Miss Wanda. Thank you to the caller that called in and had asked for uh, advice from Dr. Green. I'm having a conversation with Dr. Akiba Green. She is an OBGYN and she is here to talk to us about our reproductive health. A couple of more things I want to make sure that we uh, cover. I want to talk about sexual hygiene and our sexual health, sexually transmitted infections. They're now called called STIs and not <laughs> yes. STDs, which sounds a lot more more uh, attractive, I guess. <laughs> right? So there are, you know, again, HIV, we don't, seems like we don't hear about it as much, but HIV and AIDS are still out there. Absolutely. We still need to protect ourselves, but not just from that. There are other diseases that are out there or infections that are out there that we still need to protect ourselves from. I've seen a growing case of chlamydia among young people yeah Yeah. chlamydia gonorrhea syphilis hiv there's so many more Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we could go through but those are the the top players when you talk about sexually transmitted infections 
And of course, not all of them are always transmitted sexually. Mm-hmm. You know, you can get HIV from infected needles, for example. Mm-hmm. Okay. But in this this particular context, we're talking about sexual transmission. And so we want to go back and review what, what it is you're supposed to do and why yeah, <laughs> to yeah. avoid these kinds of things. Um, just generally speaking, we started talking about your anatomy. You need to know yourself. Mm-hmm. And you need to know yourself in order to know when something is wrong, when it's not right. right. If you start having some unusual odors or some unusual leakage, then you need to start questioning yourself and say, hey, you know, let me take this seriously. What's going on here? And decide, do you think you need to call a doctor or go in for an actual visit? Now, in most cases, having an unusual vaginal discharge is not cause for an emergency room visit mm-hmm. or an urgent care vi- visit. Okay? Right, right. <laughs> so there are some things you can do in the meantime if you don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. You can still call and get some um, telephone advice. So call it through your insurance company or I think Kaiser has uh, their own advice nurse. Mm-hmm. Um, you can call your individual doctor if it's a private practice type of a thing and say, hey, I have this particular situation going on. What can I do about this? Mm-hmm. And maybe you say, I've got some itching that's been going on for the past week. Mm-hmm. And we may direct you to go and buy some yeast infection medication over the counter mm-hmm. and try that. And if it doesn't work, then come in to the office and we need to do some other testing. Yeah. If you have a bad odor towards the genital area, then there's really not much you can do over the counter. Mm -hmm. There are some things, but for those kinds of things, I like to have the patient actually come in and just get an examination with some testing done. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's... You, you can't fix gonorrhea or chlamydia with a yeast medication. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. So you may have had a yeast infection in addition to, mm-hmm. but the only way to figure it out is to actually come into the office. Yeah. And there are still those uh, sexually transmitted infections that are incurable, too. So we talked about, we mentioned gonorrhea and um, chlamydia, which are curable. Yes. But there are those like herpes Yes. That still do, don't have a cure. That so it's all about protecting yourself when you are in an intimate situation because understand that you're not just with that partner. Right. <laughs> so you, whoever you are having sex with, you have had sex with whoever he has had sex with in the past or she. And if your partner has herpes, then you're at risk for getting that as well. And so you need to take steps to protect yourself mm-hmm. because, as you said, one of herpes is there is no cure for it. We can give you some treatments to help with the symptoms of an herpes outbreak, mm-hmm. and we can give you some medication to try and prevent it that you have to take every day. Yeah. But there's nothing that's going to kill the herpes altogether and get rid of it to where it's never an issue for you again. Yeah. So you want to make sure to protect yourself, you know, you want to ask those questions, you know, we talked also about, uh, what did you say, abnormal number of sexual partners? Oh, yes. So when you come into the office and we ask you how many sexual partners have you had in the last year Mm -hmm. and over the lifetime, um, you are being asked a health risk question. So we're trying to figure out, is this person at risk for STDs based on their sexual practices? Yeah. And if so, 
then I need to do a certain amount of testing or certain types of testing for this person. So if you were to tell me that you had five sexual partners in your lifetime, that's considered a health risk. That's risky behavior. Mm -hmm. Even if it's been over several years, it's still just based on the number itself, it's considered an increased risk. Yeah. So then you would need to be screened for STDs. Yeah. So it's not just a matter of you trying to pry into our business. Right, right. You know, it's a it's actually a health related question that can help them determine what type of testing that you can get. And this is between you and your doctor. So I know it might you know, it might I mean it's an embarrassing question to ask. Or it, to, it, to it, answer. It, it, right? it puts people on the spot because sometimes they honestly will tell me they don't know. Yeah. And I, we'd have to try and narrow it down. I'm like, okay, well, have you had more than five partners? Have yeah. you had more than 15 partners? Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're counting on their fingers to really kind of yeah. think about it. Yeah. As soon as I figure it out that there are more than five, then I already know what I need to do. Okay. okay. <laughs> One, we need to have a discussion right. about why they have so many partners. Right. But then two, we need to do some screening tests and need to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For future visits as well. Yeah. It's all about protection. It's all about talking and communicating with your partner, asking those questions, getting those tests. Um, you know, people still, you know, go and get your HIV test if you are in a you know relationship or looking to be in a relationship or just for yourself, just to know your status, too. Yeah. A lot of people don't like to get the test because they don't want to know their status when uh, they might be engaging in more riskier behaviors. Yeah. But it, it's so, I mean, technology has come and advances in medicine have come such a long way that even if you were diagnosed to be HIV positive or whatever, the the chances of your life being prolonged are a lot better than they were, say, back in the 80s when, when this all came People about. People are living for decades after their diagnosis, depend, you know, assuming they get the right care. Right. Is the thing. So you just have to be open and honest. And yes, it's kind of embarrassing. You feel probing. But once you get the information out there, it's just for us to provide better care, a better service to you. Mm-hmm. I, I got a question uh, when we were at the break, and I want to make sure to answer because I think this is an important question. Um, this young lady says that she has sickle cell, mm-hmm. uh, the sickle cell trait in her family, and she wants to get pregnant. And she's not sure what that what are the effects of having sickle cell and being pregnant or maybe even having, I'm just going to throw lupus on there too, or any of those diseases that, um, you know, are really uh, impactful to the body. Mm-hmm. What are the chances of someone having a healthy pregnancy if they have sickle cell or if they have lupus or okay. anything like that? So I have treated patients with sickle cell, actual disease in the past. Sickle cell trait tends to not be as much of a problem okay. um, because at least here where I'm practicing in California, we're at lower elevations. And so they're not really having any of those type crises. Although on rare occasion it's possible, but most of the time in patients who have sickle cell trait, then they're fine. Okay. okay. Now the more of the concern comes from does the partner also have sickle cell trait? So if we mm. find out that the pregnant woman has, or the person who's trying to get pregnant has sickle cell trait, we want to know if the partner has it as well, because it's possible then that the baby that they have could have sickle cell disease. Mm. That's okay. important to know. So we'll honestly, we'll offer the test to the father. Okay. And then make some recommendations from there. Um, 
So it's not likely that the baby is going to have a sickle cell crisis while in utero. That's not what's going on. But that's something that more happens later on after uh, birth. Well, you can be more prepared. Exactly. If you know ahead of time. Information. Okay. Speaking of testing of moms, um, you know, a lot of uh, women are starting to wait until they're later in life to have children. Yeah. What are some of the benefits and maybe some of the things that they need to look out for? Say if they, you know, a lot of young ladies are starting to have their careers and do those things and then putting off having a family till later and sometimes end up having trouble uh, getting pregnant as well. Um, so what are some of those things that older women need to look for if they end and, and I understand I had a friend that was, I think she was 34, 34, 35, and they had called her of advanced maternal age. Yes. <laughs> so I was like, man, that's rude. Oh, man. Oh, so when I say wait, but older that, but women. That's the, that's the newer PC term. It used to be elderly, <laughs> like literally elderly. <laughs> so when I say older women, that's what I, I mean. It could be 35 and up, right, that are yes. now considered of advanced maternal age. And so the 35 is how you are, how old you are at the time of birth of your child okay okay Okay, so if you're 34 when you get pregnant but by the time you deliver you're 35 you would then be considered advanced maternal age yeah oh geriatric pregnancy there's the other one yes that's so so rude (laughs) but what do those women need to look for or you know so really that's where preconception counseling comes in um so we want you to come into the office ideally before you get pregnant so we can do a thorough health assessment looking for all the typical things, high blood pressure, diabetes, thyroid disease, infectious diseases like HIV. We test for hepatitis B. We check to make sure that you're immune to the rubella uh, viral infection. And if not, then we need to give you your vaccinations before you get pregnant. So there's mm-hmm. several different things that we would assess. And, um, of course, we assess the menstrual cycles, like how likely is it that you can get pregnant? Mm-hmm. Uh, if somebody's already been experiencing infertility issues, then we may ramp up the the testing as far as what we're trying to look for and check for the quality of the eggs uh, and decide whether or not we need to refer that person to a fertility specialist. Okay. But so it's not just the fertility that's an issue with age the older you get you're at increased risk for having miscarriages increased risk for having a preterm birth should you do get pregnant mm-hmm. or increased risk for things like preeclampsia and diabetes so this those are things that are common in african-americans anyways high blood pressure and diabetes so that's something if you can get into the doctor beforehand and assess your risk then it's going to be better for you we can choose to say okay let's start you on some aspirin regimen to try and help prevent preeclampsia and the pregnancy as well mm-hmm. get you on your prenatal vitamins in advance okay some of the i want to talk you mentioned preeclampsia and i really meant want to make sure to mention that what that was and what are what could be i guess the cause or some of the symptoms that because you don't experience preeclampsia until you're almost at delivery point is that correct in some cases okay but definitely it can occur earlier and a lot of times it's because your blood pressure, what what exactly is preeclampsia? So preeclampsia, by definition, is a pregnant woman who has high blood pressure and has extra protein in her urine. So the high blood pressure has caused some damage to the kidneys to where they're not filtering out as effectively as they should. 
And so then that we use that as a surrogate to let us know how well the placenta is also functioning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so usually when we diagnose someone with preeclampsia, we're trying to get them delivered. Yeah. Cause that, because that's the only cure yeah. to end the pregnancy. And then that kind of your body starts to regulate back to wherever the blood pressure goes down. The pro- right. Does the protein with the, with the delivery kind of leave the body or is there like a treatment that happens once they deliver if no, you've been diagnosed? it's more so of a, a recovery okay. after as far as the, the kidneys. Um, what tends to relieve itself almost immediately within days in most cases uh, is the blood pressure tends to go back down to normal. Okay. And that's that's a case by case basis. There are definitely some more severe cases that we've treated before, but um the typical kind of every everyday preeclampsia case is going to be high blood pressure, protein in the urine, near the end or near term of the pregnancy if they're not already term. And we deliver the baby by whatever method. It doesn't always have to be by C section. They may need a blood pressure medication. They may need to get magnesium um, to help prevent seizures because that's one of the other potential complications. Mm -hmm. And then within days, their blood pressures are regulating. Okay. All right. And that typically presents with how does preeclampsia, how could it possibly present in a woman that's expecting? Uh, It can range from no symptoms at all to a woman who's coming in with seizures that's Mm. eclampsia so it's no longer pre it's become eclampsia gotcha so that's the more extreme end of it and they've got severely elevated blood pressures um so we'd have to obviously control the seizure part first yeah Um, but in the woman who doesn't have any symptoms maybe she just shows up for her regular prenatal visit Mm -hmm. and she's given her urine sample and she's gotten her blood pressure checked and that's when we've discovered it there and then we get additional testing and make a plan Okay. So if again, that's why it's so important, fam, again, especially if you're going through a pregnancy is to stay in touch with your doctors, know your body and know when things are changing so that you can get the best care possible. Speaking of getting the best care possible, when I was doing homework, can I add to yeah, that yeah. yeah, I kind of went from extreme to extreme end, but the, in the, the middle of the the person who does have symptoms may actually have a headache mm. that doesn't go away no matter what they do. They can turn the lights out. They can lay down and the headache still persists. They can take Tylenol. It's still there. Mm-hmm. Or also they can have pain, what we call an epigastrium, or high in the upper stomach. That's just constant. Mm. Okay. Let's go ahead and take this phone call. All right. 97.5, hello. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Listen, I have a question. Uh when in my late 40s, early 50s, I had a hysterectomy. And then I was on the um, hormone uh, medication for like 14 years, and then I discontinued it because of the controversy about um, um, breast, breast cancer. Breast cancer. Oh. Yeah. yeah, so I discontinued that. But anyway, at 75, I just became sexually active again. Okay. And I want to know why I feel so aroused with no hormone production. Because those things still work. <laughs> That's they a just, good thing. Yes. <laughs> I'm right. happy for I'm you. I'm hoping at 75 <laughs> I can get some of that too, mama. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, no. What things still work? So, if you don't have a uterus and you don't have... So... You don't, you don't have a ovaries or anything but it still works 
Yes. So the arousal isn't always related to your cervix and your your ovaries. Okay. You still got the vagina. You still got your clitoris. Clitoris, You still have um, blood flow. That's the big thing. Arousal is related to blood flow. And also in women, if you're still getting aroused at 75, that means you're mentally in a good place. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. I'm glad to hear that. A lot of times um, arousal for women is very much mental. And if you're not mentally stimulated, then you will not be physically stimulated. mm -hmm. I think a lot of it's mental. Something is going on that's working well between you and your partner. Yeah. Oh, yes, very much so. Okay, I I was just curious about that because I couldn't really connect everything together. That's a great question. Yeah. yeah. So that the clitoris there has got a large blood flow, blood supply as well. Okay. And so okay. it's kind of like the, if you think about a man's penis, when they yeah. get aroused, it enlarges. It's enlarging right. because of blood flow. Right, okay. right, okay. So okay. you still have that same or similar response. Yes, yes. I, for- I forgot about that precious part of me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. That's okay. a wonderful question. Thank okay. you so much, Stella. Thanks, and ladies. look, Thanks, I just doctor. called her Stella. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, it's, it's real. That's real. No, that, yes. that's so awesome. Thank you it, so it, much. It's real, too. The Stella part is real. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, ladies. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Bye. You know, she makes an excellent point that people think that because they have a hysterectomy, mm-hmm. that they their sexual uh, life has changed or will change. Yeah. And it can in some regards, right? Right. But the stimulation part does does not because it comes from somewhere different. Well, and she's still got other, she's got nerve endings uh, still inside the vagina there. I mean, she may not have a cervix anymore, so she may not have like a cervical orgasm, uh-huh. but she's still got functional external genitalia. Yeah. And what's, she, the other thing she mentioned is that she's gone for such a long period of time yeah. without being sexually active. And now she's got a friend and they're enjoying themselves. Yeah. Even if you haven't had a hysterectomy, but it's been some block of years, right? Right. <laughs> it is still possible to enjoy it. And one thing she didn't mention is uh, a problem with dryness, and mm-hmm. that's wonderful for her. But a lot of women uh, that are in menopause do experience dryness, mm-hmm. and maybe they're not able to self lubricate as well. Uh-huh. And so some of the tools that we have, like the KY jellies and such, can be helpful. Oh, okay. All right. Let's take this phone call. hello. Yes, hello. I'm 61, and I am so grateful that that woman said that. (laughs) I didn't have a hysterectomy, but I'm so glad to know that it's still operational. (laughs) (laughs) We are She's inspiring women. We (laughs) are too. Yes. So I remember that some older people when when I was younger would tell me there was sex after 60 so I found that to be true yes. but I'm definitely ecstatic it's at 75 too amen <laughs> yes 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 thank you so much for calling because I'm going to get with an older uh, man that's a little older than me okay so. alright I'm looking for some fun thank you ladies <laughs> and I really enjoy your well, talk well make sure you protect yourself yes too. will do yes. I ain't stupid in that area I've been hearing about we have a rise in AIDS 
too. That's yes. true. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Protect yourself and have a great time, girl. That's what life is for. <laughs> yes, Good and now for you, you guys know there's hope in the future for you too. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Hallelujah. And I co-sign on that. Thank you so much for calling. <laughs> have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. That is so wonderful that and in that, in that you guys do make a good point in that STD or STI transmissions in older people has arisen. <laughs> and you know what? I know it sounds surprising to some people, but there it is. You can still be older and still have a healthy and active sex life. Yes. Yeah. In the assisted living facilities right? as well. Get your groove on wherever and however but old you are. You have to be are. careful. Yes. That's the thing. It, it doesn't matter the age. STIs can still be transmitted. So go out and have fun but protect yourself make sure mm-hmm. you've got your condoms make sure you vet the person mm-hmm. don't just go yeah. out and have fun for the sake of having fun yeah just like you would do if you're actually looking for a longer term partner mm-hmm. you still have to do the same thing no matter your age yeah and you know what um oh gosh i just had a good point that came to mind and flew past my mind but oh that's what i was gonna say is you know when we think of uh active older sex we always think of men mm-hmm. because we usually see men with younger women, right. older, men, older with men with younger women. But it's good to know that older women are still enjoying themselves as well. Yes. I'm so happy for that. I thank you both callers, the 75 and 60. I love it. Gives me hope for the future. That's all I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I wanted to go back to... Um, Mentioning a couple of things that we have seen in the headlines uh, that were really serious that I wanted to make sure that we cover before we get out of here. One of them was uh, both Beyonce and um, uh, Serena Williams had pregnancies where they ended up having their child, but they ended up having uh, blood clots and things like that. So I just want to kind of cover that real quick before we get out of here. And how does that happen that we is it and is it more prone is black women more prone to developing blood clots and other complications after they deliver their child than black or than other women. So when it comes to blood clots, I think in the particular case of Serena Williams, she had what's called a deep vein thrombosis and Mm -hmm. a pulmonary embolism. Mm -hmm. Um, So she had a DVT and a PE, but those um, are not necessarily a black thing. But they can be genetic, mm. okay? So, yes, there are some genetic traits. There are some um, blood coagulation issues that can be passed down through family lines. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was her particular case. But the other thing is she's shown that you can have a successful pregnancy after having a diagnosis like this. So, mm-hmm. sure, knowing her history, I would be concerned. I would consider it a high-risk pregnancy. Mm-hmm. She would be on medication to try and prevent those blood clots from recurring mm-hmm. during the pregnancy. And then uh, during the delivery, we would take some ex- extra precautions as well. Okay. Or the yeah. labor process and then her postpartum process. The postpartum time frame is actually when you're at increased risk for having such things like a blood clot. Those first six weeks are very important. Mm, and that's when you really need to stay on your health. Because I've, in doing my research for this show, have read a lot and seen a lot of stories of black women in particular, although it may be in other areas too, um, dying either at childbirth or shortly after because of bleeding and things like that. Right. So that's a little bit different situation. So just generally speaking, black women and men don't always seek care at the onset of some symptoms, right? That's a historic issue that we've had. So it's not anything new. But 
and when it comes to maternal child health as well, for some reason, we tend to stay home a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also some implicit bias that when somebody does actually show up, mm-hmm. sometimes they don't get the appropriate treatment or their symptoms may be poo-pooed or maybe they don't say the right trigger words, yeah. you know, to speak to their provider who's of a different race or of a different class that doesn't quite understand mm-hmm. the what they're trying to say. Yeah. that's going on with them but they understand the patient has got some kind of a complaint but they haven't been able to pay enough attention or to put the attention toward the right things mm-hmm. and get them the appropriate diagnosis and treatment so yeah there is unfortunately increased risk for black women when it comes to delivery uh, the mortality rates are higher mm-hmm. um bleeding is one of those things like a, a hemorrhage but it's not the only thing like you could go home and have a pulmonary embolism and and die at home yeah you know that's unfortunately i have had a friend of mine that was lost because of that not related to pregnancy but it's just she went home after her typical treatment and didn't wake up Mm -hmm. so it can happen and nobody necessarily has all the information because it's that situation where we have to have the providers that are interested in doing the research the people who are willing to learn and then we have to have the patients that are willing to participate in the research as well Mm -hmm. so there's a lot still evolving i think there's more attention being paid to it now in the now in the light of covid yeah but um just generally speaking in health matters implicit bias is being talked about there are trainings that are being offered to providers and not just physicians, but I mean providers at all levels, nursing staff, physician assistant, it doesn't matter. It's uh, all throughout the hospital systems. It's being uh, taught and that we need to be more aware. Mm-hmm. And I think it, start, it started years ago with just general cultural competency and being open to how to deal with patients of another background or who speak another language than you, mm-hmm. you know, what, is appropriate in what's inappropriate yeah how to how to just interact mm-hmm. let alone take care of the medicine <laughs> right right <laughs> right that cultural competence is what we are you know what i what doc, i feel like doctors need to have more of to be able to yes. deal with people of you know you've got your own like you said the implicit biases of what you feel about that group of people anyway mm-hmm. but now how do you put those aside to go and serve them and so it looks like doctors are getting better at that but we still need to advocate for ourselves at the end exactly. of the day at the end Bottom of the line, day the only person who's going to take care of you as well as you want to be taken care of is you right right <laughs> so we need to advocate for ourselves we are all out of time i wanted to cover the ti thing but maybe i'll put that on my facebook page you have to follow the show for that because i wanted to hear dr green's opinion on that whole fiasco with ti seeing his daughter going Bottom to the line, doctor foul <laughs> <laughs> because the whole Wrong. hymen he thing to be educated and his provider should educate him yeah or his daughter's provider should educate yeah. him on why it's not necessary oh man <laughs> this has been full circle family thank you so much for joining in the program for listening for the calls that came in i'm so happy to know that when i get 75 and above it's still gonna be on and cracking <laughs> right <laughs> 
Thank you so much for calling. Please follow the show on social media, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Circle 975. And I'm going to put the link to the Planned Parenthood video and page on the Full Circle page. So make sure you follow that and share this episode with your family and friends. If there's ever anything that you want to hear on the show, email at fullcircle975 at gmail.com. That's how we're doing it, family. Thank you again for listening. Show love to everyone you meet, fam, and we will see you next week. Peace. This has been Full Circle. Follow our Facebook page at Full Circle 97.5.